Hello and welcome to the Broadcast News Wrap, your shorthand guide to the week's TV news brought to you by the Broadcast Editorial Team. I'm Senior Reporter Max Goldbart and I'm joined this week for the first time in our brand new DIY Broadcast Towers podcast hub by Insight Editor Jesse Whittock to discuss the downfall of Quibi, Jeffrey Katzenberg's multi-billion dollar short-form streaming bet that folded this week after just six months. But as one streamer folds, another marches on. And later, we've got Ampere Analysis Research Director Richard Broughton on hand to talk all things Netflix Q3 results with John Elms. So here we are. And here I am sat next to the one and only Broadcast Insight Editor, Jesse Whittock. Hello, and it's, it's great to have you next to me, Jesse Whittock. And when I say next to me, I mean, your mouth is probably 20 to 30 centimetres away from mine. We are not quite as equipped as we would like to be. Effectively, we're in the same place for the first time in many months recording. Yeah, exciting stuff. What we've got you on here today to discuss, Jesse Whittock, is the downfall of Quibi. Quibi folded earlier this week after just six months of being in the market. For those who don't know what Quibi is, it's a mobile service that Jeffrey Katzenberg, the founder of DreamWorks Animation, a former Disney bigwig, launched. He got Meg Whitman, uh, who is a very powerful, well-known CEO in America, to run the service. And there was a lot of fanfare around the service, wasn't there, Max? When it launched, there was lots of money in the market and people felt like it was going to be a great new opportunity for both US and and UK producers, which it did for a while Mm. turn out to be, but unfortunately just for a very, very short while. Mm. Yeah, I think it was very... Everyone had a very strong opinion on Quibi, didn't they? And, And I remember the early days when it was originally going to be called New TV. It emerged sort of mid-2018 is this grand old idea from, from Katzenberg. And everyone had, a, had an opinion. Most of these opinions were negative. I think there was a real emperor's new clothes feel to it. But the money was clearly there and the investment was there and the shows started being commissioned. So you, you sort of had to pay attention. And some of the larger indies in the UK were, were picking up commissions. So it wasn't really enough to, to totally ridicule the idea. It also had a, uh, a kind of quirky and forward-thinking approach to rights and, and back-end sales, which, which I think was, was quite appreciated. So I always, I always held, a, held a bit of a candle aloft, and Jeffrey Katzenberg might argue that then this, this old pandemic came along. But, but Jesse, what do, you, what do you think has really been the downfall of Quibi? Well, Max, most of the broadcast team know my opinion on short-form mobile video, voiced it to you numerous times, and my broad feeling is it doesn't work. It just broadly doesn't work. And I think there are a couple of reasons for that. I think, one, people don't like paying extra for content on their mobiles, particularly. I think people are comfortable paying subscription fees for television. I don't think they particularly appreciate paying extra for their mobile. More than that, I think there is a sense that short-form mobile video just doesn't quite work as a premium product. There is a reason why YouTube is such a fantastic and much-used product. There is a reason why, for example, Quibi wasn't. 
And I think you can throw all the money in the world at a project. If the underlying idea is flawed, I think you use the phrase emperor's new clothes. And I definitely think there was an element of that going on here. You can't get to where you want to be. And I do think a lot of people bought into the idea that Jeffrey Katzenberg would be the first person who could crack this market. And there have been several attempts over the years to do something similar. Um, for those who track the international market, you will remember a French version of Quibi uh, that launched a couple of years ago. It was called Studio Plus, uh, which was a Canal Plus mobile video offering. I think it was like about five euros a month. And the idea there was it programs 10 minutes, um, 10 by 10 for every single series lots and lots of money put against that series that platform lasted for two years before it was shut down with you costing sort of 50 million euro region for for kind of push so that, that was one failure i think from a journalist point of view you and i max really enjoyed sort of getting under the skin of what the the platform was and the it was a pretty good attempt at something that's clearly looks almost impossible the technology with the kind of um, with the screen that would change depending on whether you were holding it by landscape or or portrait was quite a smart idea but if we're talking sort of more seriously for a second about the reasons why it failed i think there's that underlying fact that the model is really really hard to crack the fact that the pandemic came along just as quibi was launching and for a service that was predicated on the idea of you know, those little five minutes when you're on the underground or you're on the bus and for catching a quick bite, hence Quibi, the fact that no one was allowed out of their houses completely undermined that as a selling point. So I do sympathise with um, Katzenberg because that, that really did impact the uh, potential uptake of the service. Having said that, you have seen things like YouTube really growing during lockdown which does suggest that short form content, it has been consumed in the last six months. I think you're onto something there, Jesse. I think the more that I think about it, the more that I don't think you can particularly use the pandemic as an excuse. I don't want to say content is king. I don't want to say that phrase, but I'm going to, I'm going to say it. Sound the klaxon. Sound the content is king klaxon. I think that the idea behind the hunger that people have for watching a top quality drama but that's only five to ten minutes in episode length on their way to work was just a slightly flawed idea netflix was already around it's on a mobile phone bbc iplayer is accessible via a mobile phone and you could watch a 20 to 30 minute episode of some comedy you're enjoying i'm not really convinced that quibi could ever have jumped into that space had coronavirus not happened and on the flip side, just because people aren't traveling to work, it doesn't mean they don't want to watch good content. And you would go further and say that people are even more interested in watching good content because clearly lots of our freedoms have been curtailed over the past few months and we've not been able to go to the pub, etc. So then we land upon the content and there just seemed... So first of all, and this isn't, you know, it's not Quibi's fault, but it didn't launch with a catalogue. We all know what Disney Plus is doing at the moment. It is sort of 60 to 70 million subs. And that must partly be down to an, an immense, hefty catalogue of nostalgia shows and, and really top quality programming. Whereas Quibi really launched with, it didn't have any tent poles. It didn't have anything that audiences would be familiar with. So you're starting from 
scratch. And the stuff that I've seen that Quibi went for, even just reading synopses or seeing brief clips, doesn't seem to have much of a common thread, does not seem to be very high in quality, even if it's very high in budget. And there you go. It's clearly not encouraged people to sign up in, in the way that Jeffrey Katzenberg would have imagined. I think you're absolutely right in terms of the, the lineup. I think there were 50 shows at launch. And whilst they had folks like Chris Hemsworth, Christopher Waltz attached to some of their shows, just having names attached to very what are very short pieces of content doesn't sell your platform. And that's a, that was a problem. You know, I signed up for Quibi and they did a three month free trial, which to be honest, that was a, a real warning sign. And I know some of our colleagues at, at Broadcast immediately pointed to the service being in trouble because that is, but you know, th- a three month up free window uh, it's surprising. You could basically watch everything you wanted to within that three months just to, just to lighten the proceedings slightly because this is all very serious. Some of the content that they had was, was quite good in a strange sort of, may, maybe not in the way that Katzenberg was hoping. So they have a show which has sort of got some notoriety online called The Golden Arm in which um, about a woman who loses her arm in a, in a lumberjack accident and is given a golden arm, which then immediately begins poisoning her as a, as a golden arm would. And um, she chooses at that point not to get rid of the golden arm, but instead to die, which she does. And she then comes back as a zombie to haunt her husband. And that is a spoiler, but to be honest, I don't think anyone uh, who hasn't seen that show at this stage probably will see it. There wasn't anything on the platform that really stood out in terms of being brilliant. And I think uh, there are many favourites, but my personal favourite is probably Let's Roll with Tony Greenhand, following the renowned cannabis artist whose smokable creations have attracted an A-list clientele. And I think it's a real shame that, that we're sat here kind of slightly, ever so slightly ridiculing these shows. But, but the issue for me was the amount that I was coming across made me giggle, but didn't make me in the slightest want to watch them was, was far too many. So Quibi launched with this quite interesting business model whereby Katzenberg was licensing rights to shows. They were paying people to make the shows and licensing rights for seven years. So you could use them as you wished in, in a sort of Quibi world. But after two years, those shows would revert back to the producers who could then sort of reformat them and sell them on the different platforms. So that was quite interesting. And I mean, we don't know this at this moment in time, but it looks like, Max, those rights in theory will go back to the producers and they should be left with some IP mm. that they mm. can then sell. So there might be, you know, some, some positives. Mm. Yeah, it will, be, it will be interesting. Just some natural history stuff from, from the BBC Studios Natural History Unit. There'd be a, a plethora of takers for, for another big budget natural history series. So there is some, some content going out to the market, kind of ASAP, and, and it'll be really interesting to, to see where that ends up. And it's certainly been a week for streaming news. Elsewhere, Netflix released its Q3 results, and we've got an interview with Ampere Analysis Research Director Richard Broughton. He was speaking to international editor John Elms about all things Netflix. Hello and welcome to another edition of Broadcast News Wrap. It's my pleasure to be joined today by Richard Broughton, Research Director at Ampere Analysis, an organisation that looks at the TV industry and and gives in-depth analysis on it. We're here to talk about Netflix's latest quarterly financial results, which seem to be, along with like 
the other players like Disney Plus, the main financial results that everyone gets really exercised about and really interested in. The headline figure that we ran, Richard, was that it, you know, they narrowly missed their subscriber targets. Was that the main thing that you saw? What, what in terms of those results from your perspective, what were they, how did they fare? Um, yes, that, that's right. So it was it was roughly in line with what what we'd expected um, earlier in the year. Netflix gave guidance that um, many of the spectacular net additions that they'd seen in the first half of the year had really been pulled forward from from the second half. So people who might have signed up eventually um, were obviously encouraged to do so a little bit earlier than they would have done naturally as a consequence of lockdown and needing some entertainment. So to some extent, I think that that was what we'd expected. We've seen the same for a number of other service providers. So for instance, if you talk about Disney Plus, some of our polling indicates they're rapidly reaching saturation among some of their key target audiences in the US. So we'd anticipate something similar there. Um, I think what's what's going to be quite interesting for the for the wider market is what happens to Netflix next year. Many of its productions have very long uh, cycles, the, they have very long production cycles. So the impact of the lockdown on and suspensions of filming will potentially impact them and many others in the market, not necessarily now or even slightly later this year, but next year. Now, Netflix is quite confident on that point, but that's uh, the devil's going to be in the detail there in the uh, yeah, absolutely. I think we should we should follow up on that before we go back to the you know the subscribers stuff. Uh, Ted Sarandos mentioned that he, he he was quite bullish in his in how confident he was about the production a coming back to productions and how many productions they're going to have next year. You know, uh, how much is that kind of playing the audience, or do you, do you do you think this is viable? Yeah, it certainly seems to be. So our, our tracking of Netflix's um, commissioning activity indicates that they have far more new shows in the pipeline than any other single commissioner in the world. So they've certainly got a lot to lean on. The big question is obviously around the filming and whether they're able to get some of their big tentpole titles uh, and the actors back in front of the camera and therefore get those to market in a timely fashion next year. It certainly seems that um, they have managed to get a number of the big titles like The Witcher, for instance, back into production. And that's going to be key for the second half of next year. I, I'm sure there will be an effect. It's impossible to have this scale of production interruption and not see any impact on the uh, schedule. And I suspect that's most likely to manifest itself with a number of releases being shunted from the first half of next year into the second half of next year. The other thing that Netflix probably has in its favour compared to some of the other groups in the market are the relatively long production cycles. So one theme that we've seen from Netflix in terms of its big titles is it may take it may take the better part of a year and a half for some of those titles to reach market from filming all the way through post-production and so on. And it means that if they can accelerate the post-production stage, even with some delays to the filming stage, they may be able to get the, 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 the titles to market in some sort of semblance of, of the right sort of period of time. Sure, absolutely. Um, go, go back to the figures. I think one, one analyst that I saw, uh, not part of Ampere, uh, said next year might be an issue for them in trying to attracting new subscribers with the amount of people in the market now and obviously you know other players like Disney Plus 
doing great runs. Do, do we do we think that that's actually true? Do we think that Netflix is going to struggle next year for subscribers? Um, it's certainly going to be under more pressure. So I think it's fair to say that its US base is saturating. Um, had it not been for the pandemic, we'd expected a, a, a slower performance in the first half of this year, and I'm sure they've netted some subscribers who you know wouldn't normally have signed up. So. I mean, to, to put a bit of context on that, Netflix is already present in 50% of all US households. Um, and when you account for those people who actually have internet, it's in even greater proportion. Um, so it's going to be very difficult for them to grow their domestic market any further. So that's where competition is going to bite hardest because um, any pressure on consumer wallets as a consequence of the pandemic, plus all of the new competing services moving in is going to nibble away at the, uh, the margins of their subscriber base. Having said that, they've still got plenty of room internationally, um, even as some of the Western European markets begin to slow down a little bit and saturate in a similar way to the US. There's a big focus on Asia, for instance, new partnerships with Reliance Geo, addressing the mobile internet user base there, mean that um, Netflix, I think, is perhaps slightly ahead of its competitors, both in terms of the way it's approaching global markets. And also, actually, going back to that production activity, Netflix has a very internationalised production slate. Over half of the programmes that it has in the works are targeted at international markets, non-US markets. Sure. On the, on the kind of international markets, I think they, you know, they they did well in LATAM, and that was that coincided with a price hike in the territory, and that was that was alluded to that 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 price hike didn't damage them in terms of getting crews. And actually, because it had the price hike, because they did better in terms of revenue and they're not going to the the capital markets you know they're not looking to for any debt kind of financing next year which is you know i think they've been marked for most years for going to debt financing what is this you know how do you view their financials in in terms of how people have been wondering whether netflix is a bubble and going to burst or or whether it can keep going with the model that they have how do you view it yeah, no, certainly. So it's, it's a really interesting question because no, nominally Netflix has been profitable for, for some time. And the questions have really been about the amount that they're burning on cash up front and whether the future growth and the and the long term of the investments that they've been making can, can be sustained. Um, our analysis in the past indicates that um, certainly when it increases its price points, subscribers are remarkably sticky um, and that it hasn't necessarily had to do this too much while it's been in growth phase. Um, But the evidence from LATAM um, that you uh, alluded to um, just then would indicate that it's not just true in the US, it's true even in markets that are perhaps slightly more price sensitive. Um, And that's very important for Netflix. We we did some work the other year that looked at what would happen if Netflix increased its prices globally by $1, $2, $3, et cetera, and how much that would close the cash hole. And with relatively modest price increases, Netflix can address all of that cash burn. Um, and it certainly seems that they're on uh, at the cusp of reaching the point where they um, they're effectively cash flow uh, positive uh, on, a, on an ongoing and sustainable basis. Um, so I'd, I'd say quite positive uh, for Netflix um, uh, right now. Sure. Um, one of the the questions that was addressed I thought was interesting and I think they they, they skirted it pretty well they're well versed in these kind of earnings calls I know was about having content that draws people to the platform the likes of the strength of Stranger Things and The Witcher and I think The Witcher series two was mentioned as a as, a, as in part as a response to this one of the things that we've always I've always thought is that the tentpole shows that kind of make Netflix 
sticky, you still can count them on, I feel, two hands. What is your assessment in terms of how much their their, their temple programming is attracting new subscribers and whether, based on what you said about the production you know, iffiness because of uh, because of the uncertainty around COVID. You know, what 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 will be their kind of hope to <laughs> to kind of keep that going? Yeah, um, yeah. I, th- I think most. I think to, to be honest, most big subscription services are reliant on a handful of tentpole titles. Um, Netflix, are, you could argue, is actually slightly less reliant than than even Disney Plus. And you've got one, two big temple titles there. So, so I think that Netflix has um, a handful throughout the year, which um, will land ideally in different quarters and ensure that the, the net new subscribers coming in or returning subscribers are nice and buoyant. Um, I think the challenge is having, making sure there's sufficient content once you've got those subscribers in to, to keep them there um, until the next quarter rolls around and the next big temple title lands. Um, and I think that's where the, the volume comes in. But there's been a lot of criticism of Netflix, I think it's fair to say, for, for the failure to produce many big temple titles. And as you say, they've got you know, a handful. Um, but equally, you do need a lot of um, uh, basic viewing that people can, um, to, can crunch through and binge through in the evenings or, or, or whenever that, that keep people, keep Netflix, keep people coming back to it and make them think twice about before hitting the unsubscribe button. One thing that we should all we always take into account with the the subscriber numbers is the fact that you know they've gained more subscribers this year already than they had in the entirety of 2019. So the fact that they missed them this quarter is mitigated, and they're going to hit 200 million by the end of this year, early next year. I mean, what kind of significance is that in the kind of the the global streaming market that? to hit 200 million is that is that just another you know tick box or or is that like does that really kind of set a standard for... um, so it's certainly a significant milestone um, to put it in context if you exclude china from the equation where netflix um, isn't present there are about 600 million broadband connections worldwide netflix has got a third of those or will have a third of those signed up so effectively they've converted 30% or thereabouts of the entire addressable market. And there are very few companies that have, have managed to reach that sort of scale and that position um, anywhere in the world, really, if you think of anyone who's got a, a 30% share of nearly the, the, the entire world's um, uh, addressable market, that's a very impressive achievement. Um, I guess the good, big question for them is, as with the US, where they've reached practically 50% or a little bit more, can they get that 30% on a global basis up that remaining you know 10 20 percentage points to reach uh, reach a point where they're reaching half of the world's consumers on any in any given month yeah so i, I mean that that is that that the, just those figures like 50 percent is quite what would that sorry just what would that would that entail in a kind of a, a, a bald terms figure what, what would the ballpark figure my math is poor <laughs> So if, if they were looking to get to half of the world's broadband connections outside China, so if they were to hit that, that figure by, you know, let's say, because the, the broadband base is still expanding worldwide, you'd be looking at somewhere in the region of about 350 million. 
um, if they manage to achieve the same performance as they've done in the US, maybe even a little bit more. Um, I think that's probably unrealistic, uh, given that a lot of those the, those connections probably won't be addressed when Netflix has never managed to penetrate some of the uh, emerging markets to the same degree, partly because of uh, price sensitivity, partly competition, um, uh, other issues as well. So, um, but if they were aiming for a target, that would certainly be an ambitious and aggressive one. Sure, absolutely. Um, we've obviously talked about some headline stuff that was the most of the TV industry has reported on in, in relation to the figures. Was there anything on the on the earnings call or the letters to shareholders that really piqued your interest from an analysis point of view, something that perhaps hadn't been heard before or hadn't really been addressed as in much detail by Netflix in past earnings calls? Yes. It's a good question, actually. I think I think a lot of it we've we've covered already. I mean, Netflix did talk a little bit about the competition, which I, I think's interesting. The competition's quite a, a a tough one to weigh up from in terms of of impact because it has both short and long term implications um, for for the business. I think in the short term, there's uh, there's very little incentive for people to cancel their Netflix subscriptions, um, despite the fact that there are all of these new services uh, landing. But what it will do in the long term is begin to influence the ceiling um, for how, how many of those broadband subscriptions Netflix can begin to convert. Um, that's probably less applicable in the US where consumers have huge entertainment budgets. So what one of the interesting facets of the US market that we've seen over the last five, six years is that household expenditure hasn't changed on entertainment. So even though um, consumers can cord cutting and dropping their expensive cable and satellite subscriptions that might cost $80, $90 a month um, and replacing the prescription with the on demand, the average amount any individual household spends has stayed exactly the same. They've just substituted $10 here for $10 there. Now, if you assume the same logic applies to other international markets, the ceiling for the different service combinations that any individual household can take is potentially substantially lower. Um, so in a market like the UK, it might be three or four or five. In, in Central and Eastern Europe, it might be two different services because of the price points that Netflix and uh, HBO Max are going in at and Disney Plus are going in at. So um, while, um, while Netflix is obviously mentioning some of the competition right now and saying they're thrilled to be competing, there's, there's going to be a, an ever-present worry in the back of their minds that this is going to be eating into the addressable spend that could go on their service in the mid to long term, particularly in those key international markets that are necessary for future growth. Right. Fantastic. Very interesting. So we think that they're 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 kind of boisterous and cheerful talk of competition is is actually masking a little bit of little bit of a pressure point underneath. Yeah, I, th I think I think uh, I mean Netflix is in a very strong position. Um, they've got one of the largest catalogs. Uh, they've got perhaps the strongest original slate of any of the uh, the subscription services. So they they have reasons to be cheerful and uh, and friendly, I suppose, in these in these notes around competition. Um, but nonetheless, their market share has fallen over the last few years, and these new services are eating into their content supply and their audience base. So there's no doubt that there, there will be. Uh, an effect um, over the next few years. Fantastic. Well, Richard, I think I've got everything and more than I wanted. So thank Perfect. you so much for taking time and coming on Broadcast Newswrap. It's been a pleasure. No, it's my pleasure. Fantastic. Take care. Thanks a lot. Fascinating stuff. That was Ampere Analysis, Richard Broughton, speaking to our very own international editor, John Elms. But we simply couldn't depart 
without moving on to one of our top segments. It's what we've been watching. Jesse Whittock, what have you been watching? The Mo Gilligan documentary, Black, British and Funny. Watched it linear, didn't even watch it on catch up. I was really glad I caught it live. This documentary was Mo Gilligan, who, as, as you all know, is one of the sort of biggest stars on Channel 4 uh, right now, looking at the history of black comedy in the UK and specifically looking at why black comedy in the UK is so marginalised and it, the idea that was kind of floated several times as, as a sort of one in one out notion that uh, prevails and Mo made this made a point that he's terrified that you know it shouldn't be 2045 before his replacement comes in it was a really well-made documentary I thought it was it was excellent the access was good I think they got they spoke to the right people I would say definitely give it a watch if you haven't done there's Mo Gilligan Black British and Funny I tuned into the latest BBC One Sunday Nighter it's called Roadkill it was written by David Hare who also wrote Collateral that was on a couple of years ago. Collateral was a bit rubbish, actually. That one's straight out there. Roadkill is better. It's Hugh Laurie doing the thing Hugh Laurie does nowadays, where he is clearly still a comedian, but is also desperately trying to be a very serious actor. And he does a pretty good job as being a Nigel Farage-esque figure looking to make his way through the Tory party. Yes, I do appreciate that Nigel Farage isn't in the Tory party, but there is some that he's clearly in part based on Farage. And there is some good, there's some good thrillery storyline to get your teeth into from episode one. There was some good comedy. I think I preferred the lighter bits, to be honest. I think the, as with a political thriller from David Hare, the drama is ever so slightly cheesy. You the comedy was at points put me in mind of the thick of it, which I really liked because to be able to combine the thick of it with a political thriller is quite impressive. So there were some lighter moments and that was good to watch. So I, I would watch it again. I would have liked a little bit less cheese, but then what can you do with the David Hare political thriller? Jesse has been an absolute pleasure once again uh, in our brand new DIY podcast recording studio, which hopefully someday will be better equipped. Jesse, thank you so much for appearing. Thank you for listening to the Broadcast News Wrap. I'm senior reporter Max Goldbart, and you've been listening to Insight Editor Jesse Wittick, Ampere Analysis Research Director Richard Broughton, and our international guru, John Elms. This week's pod was edited by Hannah Bowler. You can check out past episodes of the News Wrap on Spotify and iTunes, or on the website via www.broadcastnow.com. Dot co dot uk